Welcome to Afterthought, a podcast series that puts our present moment into perspective and invites you to think through our world in crisis together. I'm Dawson. I'm Karambir. And I'm Chris. You're listening to Afterthought Podcast. In this episode, we explore what a shift away from thinking at a global mass industrial scale to a more communal understandings and lifestyles might mean in the context of our consumption-driven world today. Welcome to this next episode of Afterthought. For the last couple episodes, we have really focused on axial age, and we try to understand the context in which axial age emerged, and then we kind of try to compare it to our times to figure out if we are actually in the second axial age. And Chris, you kind of answered that. We are not quite there yet, but we may get there. And how to get there, to explore that question, you kind of focused on the four major elements of exilage. And then these four elements were critique of power, living in small communities, spiritual practice, and a focus on uh, inwardly self-transformation. As to uh, these being the major elements that exilage visionaries practice, as well as uh, taught to the others. Now, I can kind of see how critique of power would contribute to our day and age, our crisis, namely the global climate change that we are facing today, how it contribute to tackling that issue. But I personally fail to see how living in small community, you know, doing spiritual practices or focusing on inward self-transformation, how that is going to help us stop the global climate change. Yeah, well, it's hard to see and maybe it won't. On the other hand, a, a key issue in all of, like, what is the cause? What is the great acceleration? It is about taking our potential for massive, and it's a scale problem, for massive product production of goods, massive production of garbage, massive increase in population, massive production of fertilizer, massive deforestation, like, all of this is... Why do we need so much done at that scale? Does it correspond accurately and proportionately to the human population, which has also accelerated in growth, right? 1950, human population, I think, was 2 or maybe it was 3 billion. In the next 70 years, we're now up to 7 billion plus. So you could look at all those graphs and say, well, it just corresponds to the growth in human population, and the human population consumes more and more, and so it's just all perfectly linear and and if that's so, then the argument for small communities, etc., is irrelevant. What that completely overlooks, and we should never overlook, is how disproportionate within the growth of human population our impacts on the globe and the cause of climate change is. The two billion um, poor at the very bottom of, of the ladder as far as economics goes uh, are, are barely making a dent in terms of greenhouse gas emissions or, or causing global climate change. But the very affluent fewer at the top are making a disproportionately way greater impact. So the issue is not population. The issue is consumption patterns relative to lifestyles. So it is above all the rich and above all the overall 
system of high industry and high technology we've talked about in earlier episodes, right? It is above all the supporting of that system that is responsible for those impacts. That system is, is a global-wide system, and it requires enormous investments in all of the, the production of all of these like, harmful things that are, are causing the climate change, right? that are pushing us past all these tipping points, past all these safe boundaries. Right? Do we really need it? Do we really need to consume as much as we do? I mean, who do we use as our markers or, or la landmarks to, to determine what we need? And if we use um, the very same industry and its standards right, for what it says we need, well, well then we're just going to keep it all going. But if, in fact, we invest much more in the small community around us and, and our lifestyles and how we live, and, and then we start to say, well, actually, we don't need this. I mean, we, we're close enough as a community that maybe all 20 of us could get by on three cars rather than each one of our nuclear families or individuals needing one to two cars each. And so it is partly the scale, it is a true appreciation of the scale you live at that the move towards small communities sort of helps bring about. And although I find a precedent for it in the actual age, the truth is there's many movements in the 20th century and, and now in the 21st arguing for things like far smaller scale to economics. One of the most famous economist uh, books is Small is Beautiful by Schumacher, which makes very much that argument. Um, and to generalize that one of the major economic arguments that, that what needs to be done if we're going to mitigate climate change, if we're going to like scale down our impact, is that we need to scale down our living and our demands and our consumptions. So it is living at the community scale that we need to look at above all in terms of how we live, in terms of the impacts we have. So in that sense, I don't see it as irrelevant at all. Now, where the global will come in is the cumulative effects of all of this community living, which in, in a way is no different than the description of what we're already doing. The difference is that we don't look to our community as a guide for how to live and how to consume. We tend to look to what mass media, uh, global technologies, Hollywood, big corporations, advertising, like all of that stuff. Suddenly everything's big, 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 big. But I don't believe that McDonald's or Exxon or Google or Amazon really has my small community's interests at heart. They might say they do, but I do know there's a key element, which is their own profits at a global corporation scale that is driving a lot of what they do. And I also know that, yeah, my community and my nuclear family and myself as an individual might benefit in some ways, perhaps a lot of ways, from a lot of what they provide. But what is now blocked out of consideration is, well, what if I had the community as the gauge for what I needed and what I was going to live by rather than Google or Amazon or McDonald's or Exxon? And if, if the community had a say, I think that, well, I'm convinced, there's no doubt, that, that what they would say I need to live by, what I need for happiness, what I need to consume, would be a very different answer because the community assesses and evaluates and weighs these things very differently. 
Now, would it be enough to save the world? I don't know. Now it becomes very speculative. But my argument would be we need to, to bring that into consideration to inform the answer well. That sounds very in contrast to how that conversation normally go, which focuses quite a lot on technological innovations. Now, I don't mean to say that technological innovations don't matter, but at the same time, I feel like conversation is often skewed toward just technological innovation is going to save the day. Yeah, and, and when it's named in the abstract like that, it's also sort of implied that there's no scale to it. And if you look more closely, you see the scale to it is going to be sort of a global scale of you know industrial high-level technology, which we've just reintroduced all of the things that's causing the problems and the destruction in the first place, right? If we had, now communities still need technology, but the technology that a cohesive, coherent community needs is going to be different than what a massive transnational, impersonal global corporation is going to say you need. And so I'm not anti-technology, but I am um, opposed to technology at a global industrial scale being the, the sort of default to what we have to think at. Instead, I would argue that ultimately technology st should be subordinated to community needs. And that would be quite revolutionary in an actual kind of way, but now in a contemporary, like second actual age kind of way. If we had not like technophiles like a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk who are totally working that global scale of like colonize Mars and etc. But but like much more humbler technologies of, well, what does this community really need to provide enough food for itself that is sustainable? Well, we'd be developing very different sorts of technologies than, you know, spaceships. Much as I love dreaming about flying to Mars, um, I need to curb that kind of fantasy for the realities of the climate crisis and, and what it's forcing, uh, how it's forcing us to think. And, and I think that'd be one way in which the actual age as a precedent can be really informative in, in, in changing how we think strategically. Now, I, I love the idea of, of small communities and having these rich, uh, closely knit groups. But I, I, I wonder, like, uh, the way our world is right now, where it's so much, like, mobility uh, moving around, like, we don't have that same kind of, kind of geographical stability that, say, like, people could just, you know, that people would just default end up living their entire lives together and so you you kind of have to get used to them now like there is sort of the assumption and so maybe maybe i'm answering my own question and saying oh yeah we have to scale back on that sort of moving around so much but i i do wonder like what is it that can hold these communities together in 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 our times well this is a revolutionary claim and it's it's a countercultural claim and it's a claim that fits with, in my view, the transformation that we need to affect. That we have tried, we've tried extremely hard for at least 70 years, 1950 to 2020, it's called the Great Acceleration. We've tried very hard to live in a far more globally traveling sort of way. Like one of the uh, effects of the lockdown, one of the statistics of the lockdown that just astonished me was that 600 million airline passengers did not fly because of the lockdown. 
And this, and this is now a somewhat older statistic. Here we are almost in August. This is somewhat of an older statistic from some months ago, which means in the span of a, a few months of the year, 600 million people would fly in an airplane. Now, as someone who was a world traveler once and loved being a backpacker and traveling to all these different countries, and like I now look back on that and I think that there is actually something wrong with doing that. That, that that was a, a luxurious, like a sort of ignorant luxury that we've been, we affluent ones, and it's not the two billion at the bottom who are flying in. It's business class people and, and tourists and vacationers, and it's the affluent who are flying that much. We really seriously have to ask if that is a luxury that we can afford. And certainly with coronavirus and moving to so much online instead, really raises an interesting question as to, well, just how much airline travel should we be doing? And there is no doubt in my mind, the answer is way less, way, way less. And now when I'm not talking from my own desire, I love, I love flying to other countries. I love going somewhere on vacation in Mexico or Europe. Um, but I'm speaking from privilege and affluence here. What are the costs? What are the consequences? And, and in a very actual move, this is not about my ego's desires. This is about what is universally good for humanity and not just humanity, in fact. We, we said this last episode, and it's true that it's, we have to think for all of humanity according to the actual age. But in fact, it's go, they will go beyond that. We, think, we need to think for all of God's creation to use a, a Christian um, locution, to be more Greek, to, to think about the cosmos and the divine logos of the order of the cosmos. Um, to be Buddhist about it is to have compassion for all living beings, which means all humans, but it also means all living beings. It means all of the created natural order. And much of the actual age has a deep ecological potential in it because when, when you live in a small community, what you also become far more contemplatively aware of is your place and how you depend on that place, and how you consume that place, and how your, your garbage and the consequences of your actions impact that place. And, and you're forced to pay attention to it in a way that thinking at a global scale, being distracted by your technology at a global scale, having the option to just fly, if you can just fly away from all of your problems, I mean, there's a real pun there in that phrase. You can escape them. As if, I mean, there's something wrong in that. And the reality of our climate crisis and the injustices that are causing so much social crisis and economic crisis today it should be bringing home to us that there is a cost, cost and consequence to all of these actions and that the, the exhortation to live at a small scale of your community and to pay far more attention to it is, yes, not as exciting as being with a globetrot, but it, but it seems to me, no doubt, one of the moves we need to make. And what the whole attention to the actual age brings out is this is not a, like, like a revolutionary discovery in the present. This is a revolutionary discovery of, tw of 2,500 years ago, which is, continues to be relevant or is perhaps of, of increased relevance today. Well, it's interesting, you know, like we can look at this at, at different scales and we talk about sort of like, like yeah it's like a global scale but the modern assumption is very much it seems to me that it, it's a global scale b filled with individual egos that are f going around fulfilling their desires and 
as opposed to these these communities, which uh, you bring up a really interesting point. Whereas if we're operating at the level of community and and the practices that we mentioned in previous episodes seem to play a big role in this, we can we tend to be shown our own egos a lot more and we, we're shown our effects and we can sort of distance ourselves from them. Um, this is really interesting to me because it goes totally counterintuitive to our entire economic model, which is says uh, have have all these desires and pursue them as individual egos, and that's that's just what you do. You, yeah. Yes, I, I think it's very built in, and and you know, therefore, one of the casualties of the modern worldview, whether Western or now, like globalized one of the casualties which we've already named a few times is the natural world it just wasn't seen or recognized for what it is in its limitations it was just seen as an unlimited resource to be exploited the other major casualty is communities um in favor of what a kind of abstract universality and a sort of concrete um individualism because we are all individuals now, interestingly, that's one of the outcomes of the Axial Age. The Axial visionaries criticize civilization and criticize society and its power in the name of a spiritual universal and a spiritual individual. And in a way, you could argue that both that universality of spirit and the universality of the individual are sort of freed from the, the, the power of civilization by the Axial Age. But they don't do this in order to let our individual ego's desires run rampant. In fact, that is their primary enemy. What the spiritual practices are meant to do, and, and your example of how communities can kind of hold us accountable in a way that gives us distance on ourselves, that's a healthy kind of distance. Uh, I think a lot of the, the technologies of our modern world give us, gives us unhealthy distance in the sense that we kind of can escape who we are and let our egos continue to run rampant over whatever territory they're running rampant over, whether actual territory of the natural world that we consume or virtual territory of entertainment that we consume. Um, so on the one hand, you can see, ah, the modern worldview is, is a child of the actual age. The universal and the individual are key, except that at the very same time, there's sort of a betrayal and a misunderstanding of what the actual age meant by this. The actual age extracts, pulls the individual out of community, out of its identification with civilization and its power games, not in order to free it to just be all-powerful, but in order to show that, in fact, civilization and its power is nothing other than the individual human ego scaled up. And what we need to do is become aware of our individual human egos and start to work against them now for a universal, which is not an abstract one, but is sort of a concrete spiritual living of, and ultimately the community they aimed for was not the small community that they lived in as individuals, but was the, the notion of a universal human community of everyone saved, or compassion for everyone, or love for everyone, or brotherhood or sisterhood for everyone. I think this is a really key point because, like, it seems to me that, like, from an outside perspective, it might seem that, well, when when you go and study, you know, meditation and whatnot, or you you go to these uh, these masters, well, yeah, I want to free, 
I want to free my ego. And you talk about liberation and whatnot. And it, it seems, yeah, like from an outside perspective, oh, yeah, the, then they, then you can just go and do whatever you want. But that's sort of overlooking what you just mentioned, which is that the ego is intimately connected with these power structures outwards. It's it's identified outwards with them. And it's it's already in a state of trying to do whatever it wants alongside these games, right? That that you play on a social level. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 then the, the the egocentric misunderstanding of spirituality, which is rampant in the Western world today. I mean, where should true actual spirituality be found in the self-annihilation section of the bookstore. Well, there isn't any section of that in the bookstore because nobody would go to that for books. But they all go to the self-help section, which is the biggest section of bookstores. It's filled with spirituality. Well, what's the claim of the spirituality? Well, to pick Buddhism as an example, but you could pick any of the actual religions, really, but Buddhism just makes it really sort of overt. Like, the self is the problem. That's what you have to overcome. So, it is true that if you overcome your ego somewhat, there is a a higher, bigger, deeper self that starts to emerge, but it isn't really an individual-centered self in the same way. Um, And it is psychologically true that if you move from the ego into a a more decentered, broader perspective, it is mentally healthy. Um, But it isn't really self-help in the sort of narrow, individualistic sense that it is usually meant. And here what becomes interesting, to go back to your question about what sustains the community, and you said, you loved the idea of the community, and etc. I was raised in a really tight-knit community, and I hated a lot of it because I was exposed to a lot of the negatives, right? The, and what are the negatives? It's, it's all these little petty human egos that are, are, are big fish in a small pond that you've got to live with. But here, the, the note, the ideal of an actual age community is one that is quite conscientiously and consciously working on itself through spiritual practices. So you can't have a community in an actual age sense unless you have a spiritual practice that is commonly held amongst it. As in, what is it that forms yourself, your everyday practices and your habits? We have everyday practices and habits that are largely informed by our economic model of society, which is all about catering to the ego's desires and consumption, consumption, and consumption, and advertising, and all of that. This is not spiritual, but it forms you. What the actual age visionaries do is turn civilization on its head and say, no, we have to overcome the power of civilization and ultimately the root of the power of civilization. And they don't talk about it in these terms, but in terms of a podcast, what it is is a scaling effect. They scale it right down and say, what is the root? And root here is a very good metaphor that's going to grow into an enormous tree. And then that tree is going to like grow like wildfire. Oh, bad image. It's going to grow like into an enormous forest, which we call civilization power. And like, look at this amazing forest. But ultimately, the root in it is the, the individual seed of the, the individual human ego. And that is the, the enemy of the actual age community. And what those spiritual practices are meant to do is transform your dependence on the ego into instead being a much more loving, compassionate um, human being. And 
And then the ripple effects out from that would be a universality that is now based not on your individual ego, but that is based on sort of a recognition of what it, what is the collective spirit of all of us need and want. And I think if you bring that vision into today, what would certainly rise to the fore much more prominently than it did 2,500 years ago is the earth itself is our dearest neighbor and is our home and is under threat. And we in our small communities have to live, yes, oriented towards deconstructing our ego and overcoming it, and above all, its consumption and its appetites, ultimately for what? For the sake of the community, but beyond the community, for the sake of the region we live in, and ultimately beyond that, for the sake of the whole global planet, which is this enormous diversity of regional ecologies and ecosystems, each of which is unique and different from the others, although at an abstract enough level, you can see how, yeah, the earth is this collection of ecosystems. That's very interesting, Chris. I think I'm starting to see how living in a small community can be a fix for global climate change while not being necessarily a technological fix the way we typically think of solving the climate change. In, in a way, it's like it's a interpersonal as well as sociological fix to our problem of self-gratification and the eco thing that you guys kind of talked about. And so rather than fixing the issue at a personal level as well as then at sociological level by living in a small community, instead of like always going outward and trying to think of even a bigger solution than the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Which is so interesting because that's kind of like the history of the world over the last couple hundred years that like each time we face a problem as the world has become more globalized our solution end up having to become even bigger in scope and size which end up creating some other uh, problems just side effects which then are equally big in a way and then each time we just tr keep trying to scale up and up and up whereas in this case what you're talking about is actually kind of scaling back and going back to to an extent to the original how as a society, we kind of have evolved, perhaps, so to say. Yeah, I, I mean, as we've seen in previous episodes, the scaling up, scaling up, scaling up, I mean, it makes sense if, if the world is unlimited. It doesn't make sense if the world is limited. The world is not unlimited. It's very finite, and we're exceeding all these boundaries. So the scaling up has got to stop at some points. And, you know, when it comes to realizing um, the, the community piece in this around our lifestyles, like the idea of, well, what's the right technology to improve this community? At a lot of levels, it just feels like the wrong question. It's like you don't fix a community with a technology. There might be something they need that's technological and you can improve that technology, but that's different than saying the community itself needs some technology to improve it. Like, that's odd. But but it's it does run very counter to the whole modern push to bigger, bigger, bitter, bigger. And, and there's still a lot of appeal to that for a lot of people. And that, I would say, is we've identified a key piece of civilizational power at work here. And what is it so appealing to? Our egos that love big things, you know, size does matter and like bigger and better and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's a that's an immature ego. And and I think the most important piece, because we got to bring this episode to an end, the most important piece to end, end the episode on around that would be around consumption. It the problem with climate change is no and, and with scarce resources is not population. It is consumption. It is the affluent consumption of a certain demographic of the population that is causing the problem. 
which includes us um, who are talking. So the, the really key, really tough issue, which is not a technological one, will be how can we cut back our consumptive lifestyles while well, our ego is totally wrapped up in them thoroughly. And, and the sort of self-denial required to say, I am willingly going to cut back from my too affluent, too consumptive lifestyle for the sake of the planet. Well, it's one thing to say that in theory. It's one thing to have that as an idea. I think many of us know that that idea is true. But it's really clear, it's really hard to put that into practice. And I think the whole actual age, uh, the critique of civilizational power, the move to the margins and living in small community, the turn to spiritual practices and what are the spiritual practices about is raising into conscious awareness through contemplation or meditation our consumptive urges of ultimately an ego that is too selfish, too immature, too infantile, too undisciplined. And instead, in the name of love of the other, for the sake of the other, whether the other is our immediate neighbor, whether the other is someone from another country or another ethnicity or another race or another gender or another sexual orientation, or if the other is, is the species that are going extinct, or if the other is just the planet itself, Gaia, if you like, a sort of self-organizing whole, whichever other you pick, the notion that we need to deny ourselves for the sake of that other is certainly at the crux of whatever solutions we will come up with for our crises of today.